Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with the philosopher Tamar Shapiro. Tamar is an associate professor and undergraduate officer and advisor at MIT. She moved there after teaching at Stanford uh, from 2000 until 2015. She is a philosopher doing work in ethical theory, the history of ethics, practical reasoning, and human agency. Her recent book, Feeling Like It, A Theory of Inclination and Will, develops a Kantian theory of inclination and its role in motivation. And that's largely what we talked about today. Um, I actually attended a workshop on rationality and morality put on by SUNY Albany, in which Tamar gave a talk, and I found it very interesting. So I got in contact with her after that workshop, and um, I was able to uh, get her on the show. So this was a really fun conversation. Uh, Tamar was a great guest, really enjoyed talking to her. And uh, without further preamble, here is our talk. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Yeah, you have a good radio voice. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I (laughs) can't really take credit for it. I'm sure it's mostly genetics. I do not. I have the opposite, but there's there's nothing I can do about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I I really liked your um your talk. Um, it was it was very it was a very cool talk. It was very interesting. Thank you. Thanks yeah. very much. But yeah, I I wanted to um to ask you a few questions about the talk because, like I said, I I really liked it a lot, and um, I I guess I take it that all of this is kind of brought out in your your new book, feeling like it right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yes. I have in my Amazon cart, but I have not. Ordered it. <laughs> well, the book, the book is, uh, it's been published on Oxford UK, but it's not published on, uh, uh, Oxford US until April 18th. Somehow they, they put a two month lag in there between the UK and the US when it's Oxford UK that's publishing it. I do not know why, but so it's only available on pre-order in Amazon. And I'm I'm appalled at the price and I don't know what's going on with academic publishing, um, but uh, I I apologize for that. I think there's an ebook available. They're actually making an audio book, which strikes me as very odd, but they are. Did, did they invite you to read that or did they just push forward without you? I'm trying to find out right now. So they've chosen it as an audiobook, and I'm trying to find out right now how they choose the narrator. Not that I want to read it. I don't think I should, but I'd kind of like to know who the narrator is because I listen to audiobooks a lot and it really matters who the narrator is. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I have, I don't know why, maybe this is just some weird idiosyncrasy on my part, but like, I, I kind of get disappointed when the author doesn't read it. Um, uh, it depends what the author sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's fair, but for some, I, I don't know, for some reason, like, I just don't care about that. Like, I'd rather, yeah. I'd, I'd rather um, just always author. hear, yeah, 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 I don't know why, but yeah. But. Yeah, for anyway, stuff like the book, yeah. the book is not easily accessible right now, so don't don't we don't have to apologize for not having read <laughs> it yet or something. So, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's really just just been February eighteenth is when it came out in the UK, and um, I only have five copies. They sent me five copies. That's all I have. So <laughs> here, I'll show it to you. here it is. There, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> it has a very cool cover. I like it. Did you design that Thank or no? I, that's the one part I took control over. So mm. there's a, um, 
I have an artist friend here in Cambridge and he ha has read some of my work and he recommended a few artists that he knew of, but didn't know personally. And so this is a, a young woman artist, um, artist who happens to be a woman at, uh, in London, in London called uh, Flora Yuknovich. And so I just wrote to her and said, can I use your, can I use your image? And she said, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, okay, so so anyway, so like the substance of the talk, um, you you had like three aims in the talk um, that I thought were interesting. So your first aim was to identify this puzzle about. I guess I should say we're talking about like weak-willed action um, in right. Kant's moral theory, um, and so you wanted to identify this puzzle um, that I'm. It's weird. I'm like sixty percent convinced of, uh, but I want to see. <laughs> Um, and then once you accept that puzzle, um, you hope to show that it's also a puzzle for non-Kantian theories of weak-willed action. And then um, you hope to propose a solution that you say is Kantian, but narrowly so, or not narrowly so, yeah. sorry. Um, so when I say, just for people who didn't hear the talk, um, weak-willed action, what am I talking about? Yeah, um, so there's a typical examples would be um, I mean, before I characterize it theoretically, let me just give some typical examples, mm -hmm. right? You um, decide you're going to go to bed at 10 o'clock today because you know you need that sleep and you're watching Netflix and it starts <laughs> feeding you the next episode and yep. the next episode just goes up, right? So um, you stay up later, even though, you, you know, you, it's... It's not as if you've decided really the best thing for me to do is to watch another episode on Netflix. You know the right thing to do is to um, go to bed early. And yet you sort of find yourself just watching, right? That's one, you know, food, food examples. You, you decide you're not going to have a dessert today, but then they pass the dessert tray around and you just kind of find yourself eating, eating the cake, even though you know that is not what, what you should be doing. Um, yeah. Both those of those are all too relevant. And, and, so, and then as far as theoretically, how do you describe the phenomenon? Um, typically it's described as um, action against your better judgment. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's an incomplete characterization or, or maybe even a mistaken one, but it takes some theoretical work to explain that. I mean, for one thing, I think um, unless you had an inclination to do the thing that is against your better judgment, it wouldn't really make sense to call it weakness of will. So if we assume that you have no interest in watching the next episode whatsoever, in fact, you hate this show or something, then it would be very odd for you to be staying up watching it. Or if you really hate the dessert being offered, but you you take it anyway, and it that, then it, it wouldn't make sense to call it weakness of will. It would be odd. It would be something different. Um, so generally, it's, you know, acting sort of going along with your inclination against your better judgment. Those are the typical examples. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, I remember you clarified <clears throat> that because this is being viewed from like a Kantian lens, um, 
that these, these, I think incentives was the words you used. They don't compel our actions, but they, there's just a bit of a pull to them. It's not like we're forced to do them. Right. So Kant maintains that our, what he calls our inclinations, I call them sort of our feel like it motives. Um, <laughs> um, uh, he, he maintains that if we go along with them, it's always the case that our will is complicit or that there's a kind of choosing that we've done to go along with them. Um, and, and that sort of, uh, uh, he, he, he maintains this in a claim he calls the incorporation or a claim that Henry Allison has called the incorporation thesis where he says that an incentive alone doesn't determine the will. Um, but the basic idea is that in order for a kind of impulse or, in, or inclination to um, uh, play a role in your motivation, you have to choose to go along with it. And this, this isn't just a Kantian idea. You know, I believe, you know, uh, there are a lot of views according to which um, the impulse has to be accepted. So the Stoics had a kind of view like that, where the mm. impulse has to be accepted or assented to or endorsed in order for it to lead to action. Um, so it's, it's not just a view that Kant held. Um, and I, I think there are, yeah, I could say more, but <laughs> that's, that's the view, yeah. Well, that was, that was kind of the first this was where I wasn't sure how much I agree with you and how much I, I don't, because I was, I was just kind of thinking about it. And for my, you know, just experience of, I was trying to just really faithfully not, you know, delude myself and think to like, you know, instances um, of when I do, you know, take part in like weak willed action. And I feel like I've almost experienced it in two different ways. Um, and I'm curious how you experience it. There's, there's sometimes where I kind of cave in and say, screw it, I'm going to have ice cream or whatever, or I'm going to watch the next episode. Um, <clears throat> and that, like you said, really does feel like it's an active giving in um, or like an active choice to, to indulge myself in that. Um, and then other times, and maybe these are less frequent for me, but it's almost like I sort of... Um, it's almost like I find myself doing the thing. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I, I realize I have a Snickers bar in my hand or something and that there's like three bites taken out of it. Um, and I'm curious, do, do those, do you see those two kind of experiences as um, differences of degree or differences of kind? It's a good question. Um, um, I think those kind of, what we're interested in when we're interested in weak world action, I take it is, um, a kind of action um, for which the agent is responsible, um, but nevertheless goes against their better judgment. Mm. So um, I think, and there are kinds of unreflective actions that I don't think we're responsible for. I mean, so there could be some that are much more like reflexes under certain emergency situations or something like the house is on fire and you're like running to, you know, gasping for air, right? You're, you're just gasping for air and running downstairs so that you can get some air because the house is on fire, right? Mm -hmm. There, there it's, you know, I, I think the, those are kind of reactions, behavioral reactions rather than sort of full-fledged actions. Um, but I think in the case of the Snickers bar, 
Um, I think you yourself hold yourself responsible. I mean, I think you can look back and say, yeah, I found myself <laughs> in a Snickers bar, but I certainly could have not, you know, it's not like I had, am, I had amnesia or I, I, I was drugged or something and I suddenly found a Snickers bar in my hand, right? There, there's some course of activity that led up to it. And, and insofar as you take yourself to be self-governing during that time, um, you yourself hold yourself, I think are in a position to hold yourself responsible for having done that. Mm. Yeah, I definitely have, um, I guess to use like the Strassonian language, I have strong reactive attitudes towards myself. Like when I <laughs> have the Snickers bar in my hand. Um, okay. That's interesting. So I guess, so you, you would say that you're focusing more on the, cause I guess, I guess then the Snickers bar isn't like, I'm not grabbing it in like a fire or something. So it's not, it doesn't fall into that category per se. Um, but I guess maybe the focus of, of your writing is then on the screw it kind of actions where I'm like, you know, I want the Snickers bar. But then I'm also thinking like, ah, but like, come on, like you've been good, like keep it going, you know? And then I say like, ah, no, I just have it. It's like th those are those kind of the core of the weak willed action you're talking about. So I, I am in order to analyze the idea um, and really analyze sort of what it is to have an inclination more generally, even before acting on it. I have to focus on what looks like a very, a case of like very deliberate, very reflective kind of moment, yeah. right? A moment where, um, so I organized the book around what I call the moment of drama. And the moment of drama is when <laughs> you have an inclination to do something but you're not thereby determined to do it, right? So you have an inclination to eat the Snickers bar, um, but you're not, you, you're not thereby determined to do it and you have not yet made any decision whether to go along with it or not. So I call this the moment of drama. It's a moment at which Kant says the will is at a crossroad <laughs> and I try to give kind of an understanding of what that means. Um, and you might say, oh, look, but I don't remember being at the crossroad because I was kind of asleep. You know, I, I don't I, I never got to the cross or if I was at the crossroad, I just blew by it. I don't know. <laughs> so then I want to say, well, you weren't literally asleep. You weren't literally sleepwalking. Right. So you look back and you go, well, even if I wasn't paying attention to the crossroad, the crossroad, I was still at a crossroad. I just didn't. I just blew by it. And the, the fact that you weren't paying attention to it is also on you, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's still you. But to, to analyze kind of um, what we are doing when we are dealing with our inclinations, I think it's important to kind of put under a microscope um, what it would look like if we were paying attention all the time. And then from that, we can get a better understanding of what we're really responsible for. Yeah. And you talk about that later in the, um, we, you talked about that later in the presentation as like, the, I think the question was, do we have to be hyper reflexive all the time? And right. the answer was no. Um, I don't think we do, but 
Um, I do think Kant encourages us to be more reflective than most of us are. <laughs> and I don't think that's as bad a thing as a lot of people make it out to be, because I don't think it makes it impossible to be spontaneous in the ways we value spontaneity. There's very constrained ways in which we do value spontaneity. The example I gave in the talk was sort of improvising at the piano, right? You sit down to improvise at the piano. And my point is, you know what you, you're doing and you've made a choice. I'm improvising at the piano. It's just the best way to do that is to kind of be spontaneous in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And I have an account of what that is, you know, tuning in to the music, say, and letting the music kind of, letting my responses to the music kind of go and determine what I do more directly than they normally would. But I'm giving a kind of blanket okay to, inclinations within certain bounds. But if I start playing too loud and I'm going to wake my neighbors or something, then I'm going to stop myself. Um, so there's a kind of spontaneity I think we value. Um, and I don't think that's ruled out by this view, but I don't think kind of walking around all day, finding yourself with Snickers bars and eating them is the kind of spontaneity we actually value. And I think part of why we don't actually value it is because it isn't um, intentional in, in a positive sense. I don't, I think we can be live intentionally without being hyper-reflective. Mm. So we're, ref we're almost reflecting to establish the bounds of action and anywhere within those bounds, then we're kind of, you know, free to, I think you, the term you use was, um, um, loosening up. Yeah. It's just, you can kind of, you know, stroll if you will, as you please, you know, in, within the bounds, but we want to, we want to be kind of hyper-reflective in establishing the bounds. Yeah. And I, I think of it as establishing the what rather than every element of the how. So I'm establishing mm. what I'm doing. What I'm doing is improvising at the piano. Now, every little, little question about exactly how I'm improvising the piano, I don't need to reflect on and decide at every moment to moment. Same with taking a walk, same with playing with my puppy. You know, I don't have to decide at every minute, you know, how I'm going to play with my puppy, but I know I'm playing with my puppy. And I know also the bounds of like what counts as successful playing with my puppy and what can, and permissible playing with my puppy. Right. Yeah. 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 Like I guess in that scenario, you wouldn't want to be like too rough with the dog or something. Right. It'd be like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And almost it reminds me, I mean, I can see that it's different, um, but it reminds me of the idea of sort of, you know, Aristotle's um, uh, virtue ethics where you just sort of, um, I mean, you want to almost, I don't know if this is an accurate characterization, but um, you, you kind of, you know, through your lens, you might want to inhabit naturally uh, the zone in between where you've reflexively set up the bounds um, so that it, it is in your nature, but you've sort of directed your nature towards that in a way. Yeah, I think, I certainly think that if there's a kind of spontaneity that Aristotle allows in virtue theory, I would, mm -hmm. I, I certainly hope that I'm capturing that. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. I mean, but, but Aristotle also thinks that when you have virtue, you choose to do your actions under the influence of reason, and you choose to do them understood as, you know, at the right time in the right way for the right reason. And that's the kind of intentionality that 
um, my version of Kantianism endorses too. I think um, Kant wants us or thinks we should be deciding what to do in the face of our inclinations and deciding to do what we do at the right time in the right way for the right, right reason, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, just to make it explicit. So I think what we've been talking about kind of answers um, the puzzle that you set up um, at the beginning where, you know, you say, you, you, I like the way you phrased it. Um, you know, you say that granted that weak-willed action is actively willed, it is not an instance of literally being overpowered. Um, so then you ask it, you know, in what sense then is it weak rather than just wrong or bad, um, given that it's not, I think you use um, the analogy of, it's not like we're trying to fly and we can't because we're overcome by the forces of gravity. It's not that type of compulsion. That's right. But, but that's a point of agreement between me and most of the people who write on weakness of will. So most of the people who write on it reject the view that we're just overpowered by our inclinations. But I think they, in a way, go too far the other way, because what they end up doing is assuming that, oh, when we're weak will, we're sort of freely just kind of making a mistake within deliberation. So um, Kantians who try to characterize it say we are um, putting the principle of self-love, giving it the principle of self-love priority over the categorical imperative. And Aristotle says we're making some kind of mistake in the practical syllogism. And um, some just think we're acting on the weaker reason rather than the stronger reason. Um, and, and those are all characterizations of what I think of as just kind of mistakes within deliberation. But then there's the puzzle of, well, in what sense are we weak in making that mistake? Um, so, so what kind of pressure are we somehow giving into or under when, um, when we're making that mistake? Because I don't think it's weakness of will if you just characterize it as a mistake. But people do that because they're afraid of this other view, this overpowering view, right? Everybody rejects that view, that, that being weak-willed is just being overpowered by gravity or the wind or something like that. <laughs> do so you say, you say um, that at least the vast majority of people don't categorize it as that. Uh, I'm curious, like for those who do, um, would that take the form of, I don't know, you know, kind of the state of, of the research on that, but would that be, I'm almost imagining something close to like a, a Dirk Paraboom, like case of compulsion in every case. Um, it, does that have to do with, with, you know, more responsibility in that sense? Yeah, well, I think it's a real trick to characterize um, weakness of will in a way that doesn't make it, um, well, compulsion in a particular sense, uh, compulsion in a sense that just eliminates your freedom and your responsibility. And, mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, so, I mean, my sense is that no one really actually defends a view of, um, uh, according to which weakness of will is sort of, you know, sheer compulsion, like directly analogous to, you know, being overcome by the force of gravity or something. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone sees it that way. When people talk about compulsion, usually they're not super clear on um, 
what the story about motivation is there. Um, mm. Is there choice involved? Um, in, in, in what sense is there choice involved? In what sense is there pressure involved? Where does freedom fit in? Um, and, and what are the limits of freedom? And what, what is putting pressure on the free will right? in cases mm -hmm. of compulsion? Um, now, you might have issues with talking about freedom at all in philosophy of action, and that, that gets down to more fundamental methodological issues. But, um, but I think, I just think most discussions about weakness of will and compulsion don't get into the details enough for me to understand what makes it not just a mistake in deliberation, but a kind of weakness. Hmm. You can say the word compulsion, but okay, what do you mean? If you don't mean sort of like the pull of gravity, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I take it that even if you don't, I mean, well, I guess I should ask, I mean, do you, do you have to, in your view, see this as grounded in a belief in any sort of like libertarian free will for this to be true? Because it, it doesn't appear that way. Right. So my view of free will is, is different, is different from uh, standard compatibilism and standard incompatibilism. So okay. I take myself to be neither a uh, libertarian, uh, not, neither like counter-causal, you know, mm -hmm. power person, um, um, nor am I a standard compatibilist. So um, I'm a, the, the term would be a two standpoint compatibilist. So okay. the best working out of this view, it's worked out, uh, it's a, it's one way to pull Kant's talk of two standpoints mm. when he's talking about freedom. Um, but, and the person who's developed this view um, quite a while ago um, uh, was Hilary Bach, B-O-K, in her book, mm. Freedom and Responsibility. Um, and she develops uh, the view according to which um, freedom Well, here's how I interpret it. Um, freedom is not a kind of power or capacity that um, creatures like us might, you know, possess or not possess that allows us to, you know, uh, uh, cause events in one way rather than another. Um, so in the background is a methodological view according to which freedom, and here I take myself to be agreeing with Kant, freedom is not a concept that plays any role in science or any role in any kind of explanation of events, natural or supernatural, okay? So I don't take freedom to be kind of an empirical or a supernatural concept that we invoke in the explanation of how the events we call our actions happened. Mm -hmm. um, um, so what do we have the concept of freedom for? I think we have the concept of freedom to describe the task that we're faced with as agents when we take the practical point of view. So we have to lead our lives. And when we're leading our lives, um, we're faced with kind of problems. Like, what do I do? What do I have reason to do? What should I do? And um, I take freedom to be not so much a capacity, but more a description of this problem. And this problem is real in the sense that we can't just wish it away, right? If it were not real, you know, we could wish it away or something. It, no, it's like we cannot escape this problem. 
So um, given that, it's real. Freedom is real. Right? Mm. Um, it's a predicament. Um, mm. And so when I say we're free, what I mean is when you find yourself having an inclination to eat the Snickers bar, you have a task, you know, which is to decide what to do. Like, are you going to eat the Snickers bar or not? And that's just a problem you have. You have to face it. Mm. I was, I thought you were actually going to say, um, <clears throat> instead of Hillary Bach, I was expecting the name Christine Korsgaard. Um, yeah. Do I mean, you? Course, yeah. I mean, Korsgaard ag agrees with the general lines of this uh, account of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Hillary has developed it in much more detail. Okay. Uh, did Hillary's work, I'm not aware of that. Um, did, did Bach's work precede Korsgaard's in that um, respect? No, so Hillary is a younger generation than Chris. Well, she's in between me and Chris. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> she was also a Rawls student. Um, and she wrote her book at the same time that Chris was writing, um, probably at the same time that Chris was writing um, her, her Kant articles and sources mm. of normativity. I forget exactly when Hillary's book was published, but uh, it was... It wasn't so much as if one of them influenced the other. It was that both were students of John Rawls. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause I, I was exposed um, to course guards work. <clears throat> I think the first paper I read from her was um, creating the kingdom of ends mm -hmm. um, in a class that I took senior year. I actually did my uh, senior paper um, mm -hmm. critiquing her view of, um, you know, deriving from Kant's, you know, phenomenal and noumenal realms of, of, you know, freedom um, there. But it's really, it's really cool work and I like it a lot. Um, yeah, I, I, I would like this view to be more um, a part of the conversation between compatibilists and incompatibilists. So I feel like it's hmm. left out, um, but yeah, I don't think there's much I can do about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately, the terms of the debate are pretty set in stone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. It, it occupies an interesting, I mean, I guess you could say it's a very distinct type of compatibilism. I mean, like, I don't think it fits that, um, but it's the closest. I mean, you could... Yeah. Bach characterizes it as a type of compatibilism. She calls it, two, or I think... It, to standpoint compatibilism. So mm -hmm, the idea mm -hmm. is um, um, if you if you do block, if you accept the idea that um, maybe <laughs> I'm going to get into waters that are deeper than I want to get into right sure, now. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Compatibilism. Yes. Yes. That's fair. Um, yeah. Like, it's, it's not just from the it's not just in practical philosophy that we need a notion of freedom mm -hmm. i mean there's also cognitive agency and and there's also a sense in which you know when we are forming our our theoretical judgments our our reason is free according to kant i mean we still are um uh deciding to put ideas i mean not in the same way we decide how to act but there's still a kind of cognitive agency involved in, you know, making empirical judgments and um, uh, drawing inferences, et cetera, drawing conclusions. 
Um, and I think Kant would want to say that, yeah, there's a kind of freedom involved there as well, but it's still not going to be a kind of freedom that um, where we use the concept to explain how stuff happens. It's more um, something that describes our predicament as cognitive agents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's clearly, I think it's hard to argue against the sense that there's clearly a way in which, you know, we are free in the sense that we have to choose what to do, whether that's, you know, um, vitiated by determinism or not is another question. Um, and I take it that, that that sense is really kind of the um, kind of like real world take home upshot of, of your view um, is in establishing those bounds um, that we have to do, uh, that we have to kind of live within the, the bounds of. Um. Maybe not. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I like, um, yeah, I like the conclusion uh, that you come to where um, I, I take it that, so this is the way I understood it. And I realized that we're coming up on, on your hard stop. So I just wanted to wrap up with this. Um, Cause you, you bring up, you know, that there's like other ways to be weak, which I thought were really cool. You know, there's like these environmental um opportunities where you can flee your agency and just and almost kind of settle into the way things are, are prototypically done. Um, but, you know, you, you talk about like taking the high road and almost actively endorsing these as your maxims. So, so it's almost like, you know, um, consciously choosing to, yes, this is a rule that's pre-established, but I want to follow it. Um, and that's how you get out of the, a bit of the hyper reflexivity, right? Yeah, um, um, I mean, the, the main takeaway about the inclinations was that, um, sorry, my eyes, um, was that uh, inclinations themselves don't put pressure on the free will because <laughs> mm -hmm. the free will is free. You are free with respect to the motivational pressure of your inclinations, but, um, or, or at least, on my account of inclination that I spell out in the book, hmm. your inclinations don't put volitional pressure on you. The only thing that could put volitional pressure on, the only thing I say that can pressure the free will is the burden of freedom itself, the burden of the task. Hmm. And, um, and then the point about inclinations is that they give us an opportunity to flee our freedom. They give us an op opportunity to sort of be someone and do something without having had to really decide who to be and what to do. And that's because on my account of inclination, your inclinations just are kind of the activities of your, what I think of as your inner animal, a subagential part of you that functions instinctively. So um, it's as if there's a kind of default um, person, not even a person to be, way to be, uh, kind of agent to be, which is a, a creature of instinct <laughs> um, and, and thing to do, which is the thing your inner animal is doing. And you can kind of let yourself fall into that. Um, and that's a way of fleeing your freedom. And then I make the similar parallel point about the social environment, because um, the social environment offers scripts and roles that we can fall into robotically. Um, and we can um, in ways, 
you know, they can't force us to do things. Your social role and your social script don't force you to do anything, but they provide you with a someone to be and a something to do without even having to construct that someone or something by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so they give you an opportunity to kind of live robotically um, uh, in a way that counts, I think, as um, coming as close as humanly possible to fleeing your freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a mistake within deliberation, it's more just a, an avoidance of deliberation entirely. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the takeaway of, of the paper and of chapter six of my book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up then. So um, I think it, you said it was April 18th that people can order your book. Yeah. Um, it'll be available April 18th. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon and, and, and globally it's available on um, Oxford global right now. Mm, yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you again, Tamar, for doing this. This was great. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, I hope you found that as informative and interesting as I did. Um, Like I said, Tamar was an absolutely great guest, and I'm very thankful that she came on the show. Um, So if you are interested in following up on her work, I will provide links in the description below to her and her new book um, and all of her recent work. Um, If you want to support this show and what I'm doing, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can also help me by sharing this show on Twitter or on social media generally. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts. Uh, You can like this video or subscribe on your RSS player or on YouTube. You can discuss it on your own show. And you can also contact me with recommended guests or topics to cover. And you can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thanks for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave.